BaselineBaselines.com podcast, coming to you from Vero Beach, Florida, and Marion, Massachusetts. Hosted by Ed Chenefy, this is the podcast that researches and investigates the club management and facility side of our business. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Ed Chenefy. I'm your host. Wick Simmons joins the Beyond the Baselines podcast this week. Wick is one of the leading names on Wall Street, having served as CEO for NASDAQ and Prudential Securities, Shearson Lehman Brothers, and American Express. Wick was instrumental in making the NASDAQ tournament in Miami a true major event and one of the top stops on the ATP and WTA tours. Wick has made it a point through his career to bring tennis and finance together, and through his work in both industries, he was asked to head up and serve as president of the board at the International Tennis Hall of Fame in Newport, Rhode Island. He managed the search for the CEO at the Hall of Fame and ended up naming American tennis great Todd Martin in 2014. Wick discusses with us how he started out his career in finance and how his first ever job was rolling courts at his beloved Sipican Tennis Club in Marion, Massachusetts, where he used to play barefoot on the original clay courts. What might be most interesting in our chat with Wick is how he believes searches in finance and in tennis are quite identical and how clubs should look to have greater turnover at the board levels and at the administration levels too. But before we have Wick on the line, I'd like to remind our listeners that our website, beyondthebaselines.com, is updated daily with information to help you and your club or facility achieve best-in-class staffing, best-in-class programming, and the best you can have in terms of member services. Please do visit our site and find out just how we might be able to work with you together as we head into 2021. But now, without any further ado... Here's Wick Simmons. Thank you, Wick, for joining us here on the BeyondTheBaselines.com podcast. And for our fans, could you just relate to us how you first started playing tennis when you first stepped on a court? The Harvard freshman coach, Corey Wynn, taught a class. And my mother, who was a pretty good tennis player, uh, put me in that class. And uh, it's been tennis all my life since then. In fact, I managed to avoid the sport of golf until I was about 65 because I just couldn't get off a tennis court. Wait, so, when, when, when was the first time, where, was it in Marion, was the first time you actually walked on a tennis court? Absolutely. We inherited my, actually my grandmother's house uh, when my, she died in 1947 and we inherited the houses in Marion. The house came with a tennis court. I couldn't, I had never played tennis up until that point in time because I was only eight years old. Uh, and so, you know, off I went to Sipakan. Uh, to learn the game. And that's where I learned it, right then and there. And uh, one of the other fellows in my class, a fellow named Doug Crocker, is my best friend from that day till today. I do know the Crockers. They're still members there up in Sipican as well. Just social members. He used yes. to be a pretty good tennis player. He and I won the men's doubles there a few times. So, Wick, uh, great to have you on the, on the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Great to hear that tennis has always been a part of your life. Where was your first tennis job or, or tennis-related job, and how did that happen, and why did you take, a, take up on it? Well, I mean, my first job was actually when I was about 14, rolling the courts at Sipican, you know. Really? But, oh, yeah, Jesus, that was, a, you know, rolling the courts. We had the great clay courts in those days, and you had to take the old manual roller out there and roll it up and down. It was a hell of a job. Yes, it and, is the lines afterwards, but it, uh, you know, it was a good strength builder. I would have you during the summer. But when I really got back interested in tennis, I mean, other than as a player, 
um, was really in the late 80s, early 90s, uh, when uh, a friend of mine named Butch Buckholz, who I actually played tennis with Sunday in Wilton, Connecticut, um, uh, started the ATP uh, Lipton tournament. And that he started that tournament with Lipton as his sponsor in order to provide um, a pension capability for ATP players. Up until that point in time, the Association of Tennis Professionals had no pension plan. And the Lipton tournament was started, uh, which is now, you know, one of the major five underneath the slams. Uh, That's right. It was started in order, in order to provide monies for pensions for players. And so all the players necessarily played. And uh, we started <laughs> at a place called Labors down in uh, Florida. Um, mm -hmm. It was so cold. And we did it in December. It was so cold. That first year, I was just a partial sponsor at that point in time, Lipton, the primary sponsor, that we had to uh, burn some of the seats up at night in order to keep uh, warm enough to play. <laughs> but eventually it moved to Key Biscayne, as you know, and is still going to this day. But later on, I uh, became a larger sponsor. And then uh, when the Lipton left, uh, I, I moved in, uh, NASDAQ moved in and sponsored the tournament for three years. So at that same time, uh, because of my my um, uh, dealings with Butch, he said, Rick, you ought to join the Tennis Hall of Fame because he had been elected as a new trustee at the Hall of Fame in the, in the 80s at some point. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, so he, he got me involved and I became, as you know, uh, ultimately the chairman of that for five years uh, around the turn of the 21st century. And um, so, you know, those things kind of kept me in tennis uh, on the outside. Then later on, I, uh, I joined the, the, was asked to be by a guy named Larry Scott, a uh, member of his global advisory council when he became the uh, CEO of the WTA. So I got involved that way too. And, you know, so I've really been in a lot of kind of uh, 10,000 foot uh, involvement in tennis right. over the years. The Lipton was a great tournament. You know, it was down there in Key Biscayne in the, uh, in the public park there for so many years. And, and now it, people know it as the Miami Open. But obviously you were a, a sponsor of it. And then it, and when you were, I guess you were chairman of NASDAQ when, when that, when you were chairman, is that why you then went I was, up? I was, and we needed a venue at NASDAQ to gather some of our um, CEOs uh, once a year. We had quite a number of them who were interested in tennis. And it worked out extremely well for us. We had a third party come in and kind of assay the whole thing because of my relationship with Butch. Uh, and they decided that it would be very good for us. And it was. Um, we hosted uh, maybe 100 of our CEOs down there at various times, had dinners uh, surrounding the Lipton. And, uh, you know, Jeb Bush, the governor of Florida at that point in time, came and spoke. And they, mm -hmm. they uh, enjoyed it very much. Jeb, by the way, was a pretty good tennis player himself. I didn't know that. Yeah. I, I, All the Bushes are good tennis players. Marvin, the youngest brother, being the best. When I, when I met you during the search uh, process for Sipican Tennis Club, um, you had obviously had experience running searches, both on the business side of things, as you had been at Prudential and NASDAQ. Um, but the search for a, a tennis director is, is, a, is a very interesting one. And I think when you were at the Tennis Hall of Fame, didn't you have to run a couple of searches while you were there? And, and how, did, how did you take your business acumen over to the Tennis Hall of Fame for, for executive search processes? 
Well, it's, it's so much the same, Ed. There's not a lot of difference when you do a search. I mean, um, you've got to go find a, a good pool of candidates, which is maybe the hardest single thing to do. And then you've got to winnow those down and you've got to bring along the board and those who matter along with you so that you all arrive at, you know, hopefully a consensus candidate at the end. And um, uh, so it all starts with the pool and whether I'm doing that at NASDAQ to fill a job or at Prudential Securities to fill a job or at Groton School to fill a headmaster job or whatever it was, the searches that I've run uh, over time all take on very much uh, the same um, feeling. I think the, the key, you know, for any of them is to find somebody who culturally matches up with um, what you're representing because, um, you know, that fit is extremely important to start. Uh, and uh, that was first, uh, usually that first year and a half, first year, year and a half, two years is what's critical. And um, uh, if you've made the right fit, it doesn't always work perfectly, but nonetheless, you know, both sides find a way to work to make it work. And um, uh, I've been very lucky, I think, you know, and most of the searches seems to have ended up with the right person. I mean, um, when we did it at the Hall of Fame and I was not, this just occurred just after I had left the chairmanship and turned it over to a guy named Chris Clauser. But right. when we, went out, we went out looking for a person to replace Mark Stenning who had been the longtime chief at the Hall of Fame, was not a tennis player, but was a good executive, very detail-oriented, and had done a wonderful job shaping up this old Stanford White Casino in Newport to take on uh, the tennis, to become the International Tennis Hall of Fame. But we knew at that point in time, uh, for instance, that what we didn't have was the support we needed from the current group of tennis players. Um, the Hall of Fame, you know, really rests on the laurels of those who are the members uh, in it. And uh, for instance, the Australians, you know, right from uh, the start, right up through, you know, the Labors and the Newcombs, what have you, were wonderful supporters of the Hall of Fame. They are to this day. On the other hand, uh, a number of Americans and others, Connors, Borg, uh, Lendl, et cetera, have not been particularly good supporters of the Hall of Fame. And what we needed was somebody that could reach out to that generation of tennis player and probably bring them aboard. Because when we hold our galas, people like to sit at tables with Hall of Fame members. If they don't show, it just undercuts to some degree the Hall of Fame. And right. so that was the cultural need essentially that we had to fill uh, at the time that we went looking for and hired Todd Martin because of his relationships there. Uh, it hasn't all worked out so far, um, but he's done a much better job with them than anything we previously had or did. And as you said, I mean, Todd, Todd uh, I saw him on a, uh, I think it was a New England channel. Uh, they had interviewed him as, as, as the head of the, the Hall of Fame. And, you know, you, you say that the tennis experience is important, and it is to bring in those names for the galas, but Todd's actually a very detailed executive, isn't he, up there at the Hall of Fame? Yeah, I mean, that's what he's, um, uh, you know, he was a tennis player, still is a tennis player, a very good tennis player. Uh, but as a University of Michigan grad and, you know, just a kind of sound overall thinker, I mean, he's done a good job. And he's had this mandate 
um, to go and increase the impact, particularly internationally, of the Hall of Fame. Remember, we compete with Wimbledon. There is a Wimbledon Hall of Fame, which is given the fact that it's at Wimbledon, the cradle of tennis, uh, you know, has a certain reach. But, um, you know, he's had to add to his budgets and he's um, done some significant building uh, there on the site of the Hall of Fame, what have you, all of which has stretched his budgets. And he's had to be a good business executive at the same time. So right. while we probably aren't going to balance our budgets this year, mm -hmm. uh, nonetheless, um, you know, he's been a, a, a welcome surprise in that area. And I know that one of the mandates, it may have been just after Todd started, was I think you, the, the Hall of Fame had this not elitist feel, but I know they wanted to reach out to the, the Newport and Rhode Island community more and, and, and get more public play on those courts. Has that happened in, 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 in the near term? Um, yeah, it has. Um, in fact, you know, that hasn't really been a problem for us because, in fact, we didn't have enough courts. Um, I mean, we use the grass courts in the summer, uh, and then there's we're at three indoor courts. They're under a bubble uh, right. that were there otherwise. Uh, in the winter, I mean, we, we had far too many tennis players for that, so we've expanded all of that now. And um, the Hall of Fame now is, a, you know, it draws a very good crowd uh, from the area, uh, most of whom will love to play. Rhode Island actually has some very nice grass court facilities at Agawam, at Point Judith, uh, and uh, at the Hall of Fame. So people kind of get used to playing on the grass, and you've probably played on it many times. I have. I love it personally. It's very soft on the knees and you just got to just <laughs> keep your body down low as opposed to playing on a hard court. But um, we, we, we've, we've had, we've had, uh, we've been able to fill our demand pretty well here given the increase in size in the facility. That's great. You know, I, I got to play this summer at Agawam, which I've never played at. And it's, it's an amazing uh, club over there. I've, I founded a, a friend of mine who uh, lives in Newport and played the National Father Sons Grass and they gave him a membership for the month for playing and he invited me down. What a beautiful facility that is. And the courts, you know, it is different when you, when you throw up a lob, it's not going to bounce up off the grass. So people have to get down to the lob. Um, but yes, Rhode Island and, and into Connecticut, there are some wonderful grass courts. Not so much up in Massachusetts that I that I recall. A couple up. Oh, there. Essex! If you go up to Essex, County you Club. Apply. Yeah, Essex has very a few good, up. Very good grass courts up there, and you know the fun, of course, on grass courts when you're a kid is that after about four o'clock and nobody's looking, you can play in bare feet, and it is really fun. <laughs> I've never played in bare feet. Oh, you got it. Bud Collins, when he was, uh, he used to play in uh, in bare feet almost all the time. He, in fact, he came down and played with Kitty Stanton at the uh, in the mixed doubles tournament at the at the Sipcan Tennis Club one year and really? played the entire tournament in bare feet on clay. That's unbelievable. <laughs> I've never heard of that story. That's great. <laughs> but the clay courts at Sipcan are special. I you know when when I took over there as director the 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 former president said uh, you know make contact with the people that put the courts in and I did Joe Gillen and the clay is actually you know is actual clay. It's not hard true. They're actually original clay courts and um, they take that extra bit of rolling as you as you well know from your age 14 first job um, but they are very soft in comparison to a hard shoot court and you can actually probably play in bare feet really well on our our Sipican tennis club courts. Yeah well actually the topping on them now is a little different than it was when I was a kid. 
was mm -hmm. easier then. The topping's a little harder on bare feet now. Not that yeah. I've tried it recently. And talking about Sipican, this is a, uh, as an example, uh, Sipican has gone through a, a change in the last, you know, seven to 10 years. But I think a lot of clubs in the area, New England, have gone through it, probably across the country. And that programming has become a bigger part of, of the club uh, membership play. How have you seen that at the Hall of Fame? How have you seen it at other clubs you play at? Have you seen the programming grow in respect to open doubles play? And, and is it part of our culture now as a, as a tennis club to have more programming? I think it is. But, you know, I, one of the interesting things I found at Sipican, of course, when you came on board, uh, I hadn't been involved in the club really up until just used the courts occasionally. I found exactly the same thing at the Hall of Fame and in uh, other places that I've had. And that is it was growing old. I mean, candidly, uh, it, it's so often that clubs or organizations stick with leadership longer than they should and don't refresh themselves. And at the Hall of Fame, I found that the board at the Hall of Fame, you know, had been there in place a long time. They'd take a year off when they had to and then be immediately reelected such that uh, the club was actually, or the board was actually going off the curve, you know, before the club was. Uh, and um, it had to be changed. When I left, I said, no, I'm not coming back on this board. I don't think two or three others of you should. Uh, we've got to bring new members in and new members by definition bring things up to date. I think the same thing was true with the Sipican Tennis Club. And I'm sure this happens at clubs everywhere. You stick with the old administration, the, the previous pro, won't mention his name, but the previous pro had been there too long. And yes, he had some good things for juniors and certain other things, but he hadn't rethought, you know, what tennis would look like or a tennis club should offer for a long period of time. And it became very apparent to me as I got into this and started to talk to people about it. Naturally, there are people on both sides, uh, but nonetheless, it became very obvious to me, you know, that we'd stuck with him too long. And so on board, you come, you come with nice new fresh ideas from elsewhere. And yes, the programming does change. It's programming that you're a lot more familiar with than he ever would have been. You figured out what the things he did in the junior program were that you'd like to adapt and you adapted those. And so consequently, we end up with, in a sense, a refreshed new tennis club. And I think that's shown up in the participation you've had uh, since you joined. So, I mean, that's all you can hope for if you're running a search committee is to find somebody who can do exactly that. And thank goodness, you know, you've been able to do that with us. So, yeah, I do think there's room for new programming all the way through. But I think it usually grows out of the fact that what's been there in place prior to it, you know, has been there too long. Well, thank you for the compliments. Um, the, 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 the important thing I, I always think about when I go into a club and, and either advise or, or change things as I did at Sipican is you don't want to lose the traditions and they're so important because they bridge the gaps of the generations mm -hmm. but the programming can be done in such a way that you can hopefully remain attractive as a program to both the, the tr traditionalists who you know, may have been against the original change 
and the younger families that are coming in, as you say, have to come in and make their, make their mark on the board, make their mark on the tennis committee, make their mark on the social committee. But trying to bridge the gaps with the programming and keep an eye to the traditions is probably the most important for me, objective as a director of tennis. And, and I think in any new job, that's what a director has to first look at and, and really get a picture of by talking to the board, talking to the members, talking to the new members, of what they expect out of their club. I agree with you. Uh, and I think that's where I'm talking about the cultural fit, you know, the understanding of the history of the club. But on the other hand, look at how people look at fitness today compared to what people did 20 or 40 years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, so all of a sudden, much of the programming you've done, which is based around fitness on a tennis court, you know, is brand new, but it fits right into you know, the current societal trends, if you will. Right. So no. I mean, those are the things that have to be updated. Yes. I, and I, I see, you know, in our society, I see things as I'm sure you do too, where people want, they have a, they have a, a window of an hour or an hour and a half and they want to get a game or get exercise in that hour and a half. And that's the most important thing, trying to figure out what people want out of their membership. And everybody has a different viewpoint. Um, but if you can but how many people leave the court these days, Ed, after that hour and 15 or hour and a half of exercise, sit down in a chair on the deck and smoke? <laughs> not, not many now. That's exactly right. I mean, you know, that would have happened with two-thirds of the people back 40 years ago. <laughs> Once in a while, I'll crack open a beer, but that's not that often either. <laughs> <laughs> that's health food. <laughs> and you were looking at jobs and you were a candidate, how did you approach uh, a search as a candidate? And how did you see searches as, as a candidate? Because being on the other side where I'm talking to directors or head pros that are looking for jobs, what kind of hints could you give them there? You have such a, a, a breadth of experience. What kind of hints could you give to some candidates involved in a search? Hell, I just wanted a job. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I was coming out of business school. I, I graduated from college, then I went to work for, I was in the Marine Corps for a while, then I went to work for um, uh, the Hersey Sparling Meter Company in Boston, Mass, as a trainee. Uh, worked in a foundry, you know, and sorts of, all sorts of other things. Went back to business school. Uh, and then after business school, um, I got into the job search mode. I, I only finished in the middle of my class. I wasn't at the top of my class at business school. And so, you know, I, I generally wasn't sought after by the consultants who were paying the big bucks in those days like they still do. But I wanted to, there are a couple of things I wanted to do. I wanted to go into business of selling. I like to sell things that, you know, and uh, so I had a choice between two jobs, one going to work uh, for a, uh, a brokerage firm uh, and uh, going out and uh, being my own client uh, so to speak, my own financial advisor, uh, and then bringing other clients in. And the other was to go to work for Goldman Sachs at that time as an outsider. And they used to build teams of investment bankers that have Mr. Outside and Mr. Inside. And I wanted to be the Mr. Outside. And I chose to go work as a broker when I went to work for 
the company I did, um, the fellow said, why don't you come to work for me? The fellow who ran the brokerage operation said, why don't you come to work for me for a year and then I'll send you anywhere in the country you want to. I wanted to go somewhere where I didn't know anybody because I figured that was the only way I could find out if I was any good at what I was, uh, what I was going to do, what have you. And so off I went. And that's how I started in San Diego, California, working for Hayden Stone and Company at 110 West C Street on the top floor. And uh, I had a terrific time. And when I was in business school, I had helped write a book uh, with five other guys on the future of the computer utility. So I'd learned to code. And uh, we ran into all kinds of problems back in New York. Two years later, they brought me back, stuck me in charge of data processing, and that's how my life unfolded. I mean, so if you think I went into whole, this whole thing with a big plan to end up doing what I was doing, not the truth. No. You know, I kind of yeah. rode the wave as things went on. And um, uh, that's, you know, when I talk to people about what they went to, and I say, find something that you're really interested in pay your dues at the start and see what doors open for you and kind of work that way. And, but of course, in those days, we had a little bit of a different ethic. And that was that we went to work for places we had to make them better before we left. Today, it's make me better before I leave. And uh, it was a very different ethic. And so I stuck with that and God knows the right doors opened and uh, you know, here I am. Yeah. And, and I noticed that you, you're, are you still part of Lionsgate Entertainment? I'm, I'm just a director. Yeah, just director. a director. But, I, you know, the, the, the entertainment business is going to change after COVID, I think. And, and it has changed already. Um, what, changed, do you, what do you see in the future? Big times, changing big times right now. I mean, you know, we've just laid off a bunch of people in our theatrical uh, division, i.e. because nobody's going to the movie theaters right now. Right. Uh, we're finding whole new uh, modes of distribution for those films. We continue to make them. Uh, and probably the most uh, valuable asset we have is our film library. So we continue to feed that because uh, with everybody staying at home, everybody demanding more programming, those with the big libraries of old movies, what have you, you know, are making hay while the sun shines. So yeah, the whole thing is up in the air. And of course, Television is completely changing now. I mean, we're going to this uh, over the top, they call it. You'll hear people say OTT, it means over right. the top. It's the streaming services. And, you know, all the big majors are fighting uh, to see whose streaming service is going to be preeminent. And there'll be about five or six of those for a firm like Lionsgate. We have our own stars channel. And, you know, it in turn is adding subscribers at a record rate right now. So, all the content that we make and we're a content company now either goes that way goes to third parties um or um you know is up for auction and it's a pretty good position to be in that's that's good great great job i i i thought about you know i think about people going back to work um and i think in general uh post covid whenever that may be there's you know we don't we have no idea really but post-COVID, I, I don't think we're going to have the work week like we used to have. I think people have realized that they can work remotely, they can work from home, they can have a maybe a, a better life-work balance now that we've we've been through this almost for a year, uh, coming up to a year. Um, how will how do you think that will affect acting? Because actors, you know, have to be on set. Um, how do you, how do you see that happening? Well, we're still making. We're still doing our productions, 
You uh, are gradually bringing them back. Yes, we have to be far more careful than we once did about distancing and masks and all the rest. But nonetheless, I mean, we're still making that content the same old fashioned way on sets. Right. You're absolutely right. Um, you know, the, the whole thing's interesting to me because I still think, and maybe I'm old fashioned here, but you're better off working in a work environment than you are at home. And there are jobs that can be done from home, but you know, the interaction among people from which so many ideas spring, mm -hmm. and so many efficiencies grow, what have you, um, I mean, is being, is, is being hobbled uh, by this work from home. And yes, some people can bail it in, but I don't think most people can. And I don't know exactly where it's going, but it would surprise me if what people are reading as the future, it becomes the same, the future that they're, they're looking at. I, I think it, we're going to go back to a lot of the old ways. Interesting. I, it, was, it was interesting yesterday. I taught a woman who is in software sales. Um, I always ask my students uh, if I don't know them. She's visiting her parents for a few months here as she's working remotely. And uh, I asked her what she did, and she's in software sales. And so you, you said to me earlier, you love you love sales. And I turned to her and asked her, you know, isn't it going to be that you're going to have to start to travel again? Because the person that does make the personal trip to sell something, they're going to be in an advanced position compared to someone who does it via Zoom. Don't you think on, in terms of sales, especially? Yeah, I, I do. I, I, you know, I, I don't, I mean, look, I was in personal sales. I had to, my job was to get people to trust me with their financial investments. Uh, and I don't think I could ever do that without seeing them ultimately. Mm -hmm. I mean, yes, I introduced myself over the phone. Most of the clients I opened up, I opened up over the phone, but over a period of time, this was the great thing about doing it on the West coast. You have all afternoon to go out and meet your clients in one form or another. And I don't think I ever would have become as successful as I was had I not been able to meet those people in person. So um, uh, now, you know, that's just one, one person's take on the whole thing. And I'm sure there are others who think they can do it the other way and maybe through referrals and things of that kind, they can. But I mean, selling is really intensely personal I mean, if you really want to uh, crack the big dollars. the tournaments going forward and you being you know still so involved and, and, and loving the sport of tennis how do you think the tours are going to advance after this have, have you had any insights to that have you heard any rumors you're so oh, tennis, you know, tennis is the most garbled sport there is I mean it's too bad it's it's you know it's here we've got this great sport that both men and women play and I'm interested in watching women play I'm not interested in watching women play lots of other sports but tennis I am, and, and women are w interested in watching the men play. I mean, it's a great universal sport. Um, and yet, you know, here we are uh, with the ITF, the ATP, the WTA, et cetera, et cetera, alphabet soup. And the only act people that have their act organized in my estimation are the slams, period. And they kind of run the game because of that. Mm -hmm. uh, and, um, you know, I, I just think it's tragic that tennis cannot merge uh, these pieces to create joint 
uh, opens and tournaments, what have you, on a, on a much more frequent basis uh, to bring everybody in and provide the jobs that the tennis industry uh, needs to provide. Uh, I just think it's, 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 it's sad. So uh, that said, um, I still think it's a great event. It's built for television because it's played on a small court. It doesn't take too long. The only matches that people complain about are the finals of, I mean, our slams with the three out of five uh, on right. the side. But, you know, I think it is a matter of fitness, what have you. And I, I would hate to see that stop simply because historically, it would be tough for me to compare somebody who won something two out of three, as opposed to somebody who won it three out of five. Right. Uh, anyway. No. Uh, so, I, but I, I think tennis has a great future in front of it. Anybody can play the game. I mean, yes, you do need a court, but it's not as expensive as golf. You don't need a golf course. So uh, right. put a court in the inner city. You can teach inner city kids to play. And in, in many cases, they, you know, are very good athletes and would love the game. So I think tennis has a, a, me as a great future. I wish, as you had said, that there were more. When I umpired on the tour, I, I, and I was at the Lipton as an umpire, um, I really enjoyed the tournaments and the slams are uh, included where the, where the men and women are playing at the same venue. Now, I understand that that puts a, a bigger crush on the courts and the number of courts and the size of the venue. But I think it does bring in a, a bigger crowd, more revenues to the tours, respectively, and just more excitement when the tours combine to be in the same place at one time. I, I just found it so much more interesting as a referee and as a spectator. I, I agree with you, although economically, surprisingly enough, it doesn't necessarily work that way. No. We own the, um, I, I was one of the owners with Butch of the uh, Connecticut Open which is mm -hmm. takes place a, a week before the uh, U.S. Open every year. Right. Uh, we started it as a women's tournament originally, and we made good money uh, running it as a women's tournament. We actually rented it from the ATP. We didn't own the tournament. We rented it uh, from the ATP, uh, from the uh, USTA. Right. Um, but when the USTA got stuck for a men's tournament prior to, they asked us to take on the men for a while. We brought the men in. And because of the venue, what have you, we were unable to be as successful financially uh, with a combination of men and women um, because of the demands of the two, ATP and WTA, as to what we should do. Had there been one unified uh, authority, I think right. we could have made this work. So we actually had to give up the men's afterwards and go back just to the women's where we are now. And it wasn't our fault because between Ann Worcester and Mike Davies, who ran that tournament for many years, Ann has always been the chief. She's great. Um, the tournament is extremely well run and the people who play in it love to play in it. But, you know, we've got to work out something that um, better in a week's tournament. Remember, we're not talking about the two week tournaments now. We're talking about right. in a week's tournament can make money uh, going both ways. Now, was the Connecticut Open, is it at, at, the Yale, at New Haven? Yes. Yeah. on the Yale grounds and the stadium yep. right there. Right there. No, I, I umpired there too. It was a, it's a great tournament back in the 90s, but um, fantastic facility. And, uh, it's that's a beautiful a, facility, yeah. Interesting point that you make that the two tours create so much of a difference, co different cost basis that it actually costs the tournament sponsors more money to sponsor. That does. It's un unreal. I never, never thought of it that way, but great point.
to wrap up, what do you see in the future of club tennis? And where do you think that country club tennis will, will be in five to 10 years? Because I need to know because I like my job longevity. But what do you think you, you see in the future for country club tennis? Well, why is it going to change? I mean, you know, I, I look at my little Sipican tennis club and the other clubs that I've been a part of, you know, around the country. And I don't see them changing much. I, I was out in La Jolla last summer and I went by the old La Jolla tennis club. This is not the beach and tennis club. This is La Jolla tennis club, which is in town. Uh, and right next to Bishop school, La Jolla tennis club, the same courts are there. The same courts were full that I used to play on, what have you. I, I don't see why it's going to change much. And, you know, I'm looking at this thing from a perspective of 80 years old. I've been playing tennis for 72 years. I don't see the difference at the Sipican Tennis Club, except in the quality of the activities, which are much higher and better than they were back in those days. And I also have to say that after this COVID year, my God, look at the additional participation we had on those courts. Yep. I mean, yes, kids came home, stayed with their parents, what have you, but they all came out in the tennis courts. And, you know, to me, that just kind of refreshes tennis in a way. That's probably, that probably happened all over the country, my guess is. And yep. all those people who played a lot more tennis last summer than they had in the previous five summers are all starting to think, hmm, I like that game again. You know, I'm going to go back and play. I mean, I think that's a natural, to me, you know, you build up some momentum here that will carry us through the next three or four years, even if the vaccine is here. And God knows, I hope it is. I think you're right. I, I, I think it was a chance and an opportunity for us to show what clubs can do in times of crisis and come together as a membership as well, which I think makes the club more cohesive. And I also feel that we have a lot of new players in the sport, not just at the country club level, but as you said, in the inner cities and at the JCC centers, the USDA centers, because it is a socially distant sport. I know golf has been able to measure, I, I think the figure is something in the region of 10 million more rounds of golf were played in the last 12 months, year on year. And I wish we had that measurement for tennis. I don't think we do. I haven't seen a number, but I know it's up. At Sipican, we were up 33% in terms of play. Up until last year, I think, yep. and I'm pretty sure about this statistic, I believe tennis was the only national sport whose sales of product merchandise had gone up the previous four or five years. And I can tell you, I was a part of a, we, um, Butch and uh, started something called First Serve uh, mm -hmm. that was, um, uh, you know, to bring tennis to kids in the inner city. And we worked hard at that. And um, a guy named Mal Washington, who you may remember, used to play on, of course. The, you know, down in Florida, what have you, did a sensational job, as did other persons like him in places like Memphis and other words. And my God, the outpouring that we had for kids in the inner city to come out and play tennis was remarkable. And yes. so, I mean, I think there's a, there's, there's a lot to come from there too. I mean, it's really, it's, it's a universal sport. It's not an expensive sport to play once you have a court or a place to play. And um, I, I think the future of tennis has is, is got to be great. Well, thanks for your time, Wick. It's, it's so funny going back to your biography, and I, I had forgotten this, that um, you're from Katona, New York, which is basically where I'm from. I'm from South Salem, eight miles away. And somehow what goes around in life always comes back. Where you were in Katona, I was in South Salem, and here we are talking tennis in 2020, heading into uh, 2021 post-COVID, we hope. But I just wanted to thank you so much for your time and, and, uh, and all that you do for our sport and our industry. 
uh, as tennis pros and tennis players. Well, it's a great game. I love it. It's a lifetime game, and I hope other people feel pretty much about it the way I do. Okay, thank you so much, Ed. It's been thank a great you. talking to you. to beyondthebaselines.com podcast. It's a pleasure bringing you each week's news and views and great guests from our tennis, fitness, and country club industries. You can always reach the team here at beyondthebaselines at gmail.com or on the phone at 508-538-1288. Please do visit our website at www.beyondthebaselines.com, which is updated regularly with even more information for you, your club, or your facility. See you again soon.